Well, for everyone out there on YouTube who's self-isolating with us, hello and welcome to episode three of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and joining me today is CIS policy analyst Monica Wilkie, who will be talking to us about the perils of self-isolation. Monica Wilkie, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Salvatore. How are you? <laughs> good, good. Look, I'd like to lead off by asking you to share your thoughts about self-isolation. What do you think we lose when it comes, well, <laughs> when it comes to my family, maybe what do we gain when we give up the opportunity for face-to-face -face interaction? Yeah, sure. Well, thank you very much, first of all, for having me on this episode. And thank you all to those people out there in YouTube land who are who are currently connecting in, dialing in. I mean, it's it's fantastic that we have these technologies. But as I think we're going to explore today, there, there are always downsides with these things. And as you said, with with self-isolation, we we know the dangers. What, ha what happens when we when people are deprived of physical face-to-face -face contact I mean, It's fantastic that we have these communicative technologies like this now. We have Skype, we have Zoom, we have FaceTime. And undoubtedly, if we didn't have these technologies, we would be in a far worse situation. If people didn't have the ability to work from home, there would be a lot more unemployment and things would be an awful lot worse. Right. But, but there are just very basic fundamental needs that we all have that we cannot currently meet with these with these technologies. Simple things like eye contact. So even though we're currently <laughs> teleconferencing and I can see your smiley face and you can see my face and the viewers can see that, at no point are we going to actually directly make eye contact. And we know how important that is for gauging emotions, for gauging reactions to engaging people. So that's a simple thing that we're currently missing. Also things like handshakes. Yeah, you know, yeah. embracing a loved one, a, a warm pat on the back, a, a high five after a victory, all of these things that we don't notice when we have them suddenly become very important when we're all disconnected from each other. Yeah, well, I mean, there's certainly societies where people aren't always hugging and high fiving. You know, there are a lot of societies where social distancing is the norm, where, you know, maybe you bow or a salam alaikum or, you know, some very distant uh, interactions with people other than the very closest people in your family whom, let's face it, in self-isolation, we're not, many of us are not self-isolating, we're family isolating. Um, so aren't we just, you know, doing what a lot of people do anyway? Well, I think on the, on the idea that there are societies that distance most of the time, that's the norm, you get the example of people bowing, that certainly exists, but that's not the society that we have. We're very, we're very tactile. You know, when you meet someone, you 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 shake their hand for the first time. You know, you you look them in the eye. And even in those societies where there is that physical distance, anyway, you're still seeing people face to face. So you are right. getting things like eye contact. You are you are getting a better sense of their facial expressions and all those sorts of things. So even in societies that are more distant than us, they still have more face-to-face -face contact than what we're currently having. And even though there are people, like you said, many of us are self-isolating, we're, we're with our families, we live with other people, flatmates, that sort of thing. I mean, there are a good, we have more people now than ever, according to the last census, who do live alone. So they're at higher risk as well. I mean, there's there's also the the, the uh, 
if you're if you're in a home you know all the time and you don't have those releases where you can go out then there is a risk as well that you know tensions can build up within homes so i think there's that risk as well yeah, but I, I, mean, I want to push you a little bit on this because you know, I'm an expat here. I, I assume you're Australian. Yes. Or not, but, you know, and, and as an expat, honestly, I'm used to, you know, living life with only, you know, my closest connections here and everyone else is at a distance. You know, I, I work at a university, so we don't hug. We don't uh, often at a university, we don't even talk <laughs> to each other. <laughs> and, and you know, I don't have parties. I don't go to barbecues. And, and I, I'm perfectly fine. At least I think I am. I, I mean, so I think those of us who are expats are maybe think this is just all normal. I mean, does it matter, do you think, whether someone's used to it or not used to it? Is, it, is this a matter of just what we're accustomed to? I think what we're accustomed to could be a part of it as well. But I mean, even if you're talking about I mean, the, the situation you just described with your with yourself, being you know, you're an expat, you know, maybe those stronger connections are far away or in another country most of the time. But even someone who, you know, might be an introvert or might normally say that they don't go out a lot, don't go to parties, they would still have more face-to-face -face human interaction in their daily lives than what we're currently having now. Right. Right. And, and is that a problem? I, I, I mean, okay, people want to have a party and they're not. Um, is that, does that have any long-term effect? I mean, do we really know that that's going to hurt anybody or is it just an inconvenience? Well, I think it's, I think it's, a little, it's a little bit more complicated than people just not being able to have parties. So interestingly, September last year, the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare actually put out a report on social isolation and loneliness. So those two things are slightly different. So social isolation is when you have minimal contact with other people. And there's 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 a lot of literature about the long-term impacts of that, you know, uh, premature death, mental illness, depression, inc increased risks of substance abuse, smoking, decreased physical activity. All of these sorts of things have been documented when people are socially isolated. And that report goes on to say how those things can possibly be minimised. So things like, you know, participating in sports, participating in community activities, right. making sure making sure you, you, you go out and interact with people. Now, at the moment, those things are banned. We can't go out and join in team sports. We can't right. go out and, and interact with the community. And although I, I, I agree that things like this, are very helpful and they will go a long way in in mitigating a lot of these impacts. But I think we sort of have a perfect storm at the moment where people are losing their jobs or they've lost wages or they are at risk of losing their job or lost wages in the near future. And right. we normally tell people in those situations, you know, make sure you keep a routine, make sure you go out and visit friends, visit family, keep some sort of normalcy to keep your spirits up at the moment right. people can't do that but uh, oh, this is something that i mean i'm sorry to make a little fun of this but the uh i heard the a, an executive from unilever speaking on the radio she said that unilever is this global you know company global food global food producer who've been tracking 
what people are binge buying in different places. And you mentioned alcohol and cigarettes. I thought it was hilarious that in the United Kingdom, alcohol has been Unilever's big spike in volume. In the United States, it's been five-gallon tubs of ice cream. <laughs> it tells you what our priorities are in different countries. But either way, right, I mean, binge drinking or binge ice cream is not going to do you a lot of good. No, no, it's not. And uh, it, it's interesting. The um, Yesterday, YouGov put out some polling around this issue, asking people about their their mental health in... in um, their, their mental health during this crisis. And the number one and two stresses for people were not being able to see their friends and not being able to see their family. Those two stresses came above not being able to potentially pay bills or losing... Oh, really? Or losing unemployment. Yes, so those were the two main. And then they also asked people about their level of physical activity and about... I think it was 25, 27% of people say they're exercising less during this time. They're also eating more unhealthy than they were during this time. So I think I think those, we're sort of having compounding these factors. And I think even though people are already feeling the stresses, I don't think we're going to see the potential long-term negative effects psychologically and health-wise. I mean, we know the negative health consequences right. of physical inactivity and and eating right. eating poorly but those things are going to take a long time before we see the effect so it's going to be a negative slow burn right I mean, let me take a moment so everyone at cis of course is also self-isolating and cis is an independent non-profit organization that gets all of its money from its public supporters it, it takes no government money at all under any circumstances Please go to the website now, cis.org.au, click the red donate button. If you're not a member, please become a member. Membership categories start at, I believe, $40 for the friendship level, and CIS would love to have you as a member. And of course, also click the subscribe button on the YouTube channel here. We'd love to have more subscribers. Uh, we're pushing 10,000, and if we can get to that 10,000 mark, nothing will happen except it'll go over the 10,000 mark. But as you can see, that would make Monica very happy to hear if we did. So speaking of the internet and you know, technology, you warned on April 9th in your ideas column, ideas comes out every Friday from CIS and you were in last Friday's ideas that quote, a failure of our technology could wake us up to the fragility of our entire lives. And you specifically cited the MyGov crash when uh, people seeking uh, job seeker registrations you know, crashed MyGov. Uh, Zoom security problems. We've all come to depend on Zoom, but there have been worries that it is not as secure as we think. You know, do you think technology is you know, a savior for us, a, a lifesaver that's getting us through this? Or do you see it as potentially something that is going to be compromised? Well, it's at at the moment it's both. Right? So okay. as as I said at the beginning, I mean, if if we didn't have these technologies, even simple things like the um, well, what we now think is simple cloud technology, so we can access our files and all those sorts of things wherever we are, which would make the if you didn't have that transitioning from an office to working from home would be an right. awful lot more difficult. So at the moment, these technologies have proved absolutely fantastic but the the point i was getting at in that piece was the way i've been thinking about particularly this pandemic is i don't think any of us 
late last year or either early this year would have thought that this is where we would be in mid-April 2020. I mean, it's, it's, it's taken us all completely and totally by surprise. And I was just working through the idea of if something were to happen, there was a, a hack or our technology was to fail or something like that, do we have a plan B? And considering how reliant we all are on these technologies, is it even is it even possible to do that? So I think it's it's an interesting idea about about preparedness and redundancy as well. Is it is is this the only plan? There is no plan B because it can't we can't possibly have one. Now, now we have Mike joining us from Pittsburgh. Um, shout out to Mike in Pittsburgh, oh. my former colleague at University of Pittsburgh. And that brings Hello, to mind the fact, <laughs> and, that, and that brings to mind the fact that uh, Australia's internet connection to the rest of the world sometimes feels like you know sipping through a straw to get the internet. Telstra CEO Andy Penn suggested that we should be internet rationing. That is to be considerate of other people, you know, wait till midnight to download that, uh, you know, 400 gigabyte movie that you want. Uh, what do you think about this? Should we be rationing our Internet use? I mean, that's it's, it's sort of that goes as well to what I was talking about earlier with a perfect storm of, you know, social pressures and social isolation and all that kind of things that are going on. I mean, it's. It's nice to think that we could internet ration and with some things that would be possible. So, you know, if you were downloading a movie, maybe you could do it overnight. But we've all been told that because we have this technology and because we can work from home, we have to do it in order to save lives, in order to stop the spread of coronavirus, in order, you know, to, to make sure if we're okay, that we're not endangering other people and the more vulnerable. So we're being told to do this. And then it's like, oh, no, but, but don't do it too much. But... We have to, by the nature of the situation, we have to do it more. So I'm not quite, I think that that's that's just a, a completely unreasonable thing to expect of people. I mean, we, we need to talk to family, friends, we need to work. Right, right. Sometimes, I mean, like the, we just have to be online at the same time now. Right. So well, it, it doesn't it doesn't really work practically. Well, let's be honest with ourselves. You know, most internet usage is not this fundamental stuff we're doing, connecting with families and friends and, and going to work. Most internet usage is downloading movies and watching pornography. <laughs> Just to be perfectly frank about you know, the, where internet use is coming from. And, you know, should people be... Uh, you know, just conscious of that. I mean, well, should be people be downloading movies the night before rather than at, you know, 7 p.m. when everyone wants the Internet? You know, that's when everyone clogs it up. Or should we just say it's the company's problem to provide the service? I mean, if, if people can do that, sure. But what, what we're seeing right now is because everyone is using the Internet more all the time, usage has increased and, and the peak hours have extended out so much as well. So I just think it's right. unreasonable. <laughs> All right. Well, Gay wants to know, she asks if you're well, and Gay, we covered that. She's very well, thank you. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Hi, Gay. But, but do you feel positive about the government's ability to pull us through the negatives of what lies ahead? I, I feel far more positive about individuals and community spirits' ability to, to pull ourselves ahead just 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 purely on a on a psychological level i mean the the government's obviously announced various spending packages and that sort of thing that would that would help people make make ends meet during this during this time but we absolutely have to rely on ourselves and our 
and each other to to make sure that we come out the other side mentally strong as well. I mean, doing doing things like this is important because even though gay, I would I would much rather be uh, in the CIS offices having this conversation over a glass of wine, as we've done many times. I mean, this at least we can have some level of interaction. And I, I think we have to rely on the, the community to make sure that the, the bonds are strong, even a digital virtual community for the time being. Right. I mean, let me just ask you, if you had to pick one government, <laughs> would you pick your state government, New South Wales, or would you go for the national government? Who's, who's performing in this crisis? As a, as a libertarian, Salvatore, you can't ask me to pick a government. This <laughs> goes against, against everything I believe in. But no, I mean they're I mean they're they're uh, they're both handling it in 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 different in different ways. I mean, there's my um, my colleague Peter Curdy has written about the concerns about how New South Wales is enforcing the various social distancing and public health measures. So I think that's something to be aware of. And the CIS is currently pulling together a project where we're going to be examining how the government responded and in terms of the advice that they were given at the time. So as a top secret, as far as I know, that's a top secret project. No, we're 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 t- we're we're letting our members know what we're doing. So I'm not going to say anything more. You'll you'll all, you'll have to get me back to find out the details. Oh, but it is a good opportunity for me to plug the contributions again. If, if you'd like to support CIS's pandemic work, and CIS does have a lot of pandemic-related work in the pipeline. Uh, CIS needs your support. Uh, please go to the CIS website, cis.org.au. Don't forget the AU or you'll end up at an American immigration site. If you go to cis.org.au, you should see the familiar green and white logo. Just click the donate button. Of course, we'd even more like to have you as a member. So if you're not already a member, click the membership button. I think the uh, friendship level of membership, which gets you 99% of the perks, uh, starts at just $40. And of course, please do subscribe to the YouTube channel. Uh, Monica, we have a question from Octavian, Octavian the Fourth, to be specific. Uh, as we come out of the crisis, what responsibilities do you think individuals have to repair their communities? Very good question, Octavian the Fourth. Thanks for asking it. But yeah, I think I think we have to to be aware of how important these these social bonds are and the things that I spoke about at the beginning in terms of, you know, the the mechanisms that can be used to alleviate social isolation. So being involved in team sports, your community, volunteering, those sorts of things. And I'm, I'll be interested to see what happens when we when we get on the other side of this, as is the, the favourite phrase to, for our politicians to use, is, well, I, I would hope that this would sort of reinvigorate a, a community spirit, because if we've been deprived of these things, for, I mean, we don't we don't know how long that's going to be. And I think that the, the not knowing adds a level of anxiety to it as well. That's that's not that's not helpful. So I would I would like to think that we would be able to reinvigorate a, a community spirit, especially after a period of deprivation. Right. But, you know, Octavian followed up. Do we have duties as well as, you know, of course, we're all free to help get things started or remake society or keep society running. Do we have any duties to do so? Yeah, I think, I think absolutely. I think every, every right has a, a corresponding duty 
to it. Well, well, but like, what should, in practical terms, you know, if we're going to, you know, hopefully this crisis will be over soon. My own prediction, for what it's worth, is that we'll be back to work in, in May. I've proposed May 4th. Uh, may the 4th be with you as a uh, start date for getting back to work. Uh, what should each of us do? I mean, right now we've been told what you need to do is stay home. What you need to do is do nothing. Well, any ideas for what we can do to do something? You know, once May rolls around and it's time, I mean, famously, back in the September 11th crisis in the United States, George W. Bush said, go shopping. The most patriotic you can, thing you can do is go shopping. Well, is the patriotic thing yeah. to do in May go buy a car? Uh, I mean, what should Australians be doing uh, well, uh, when the crisis is over? Well, first of all, I think you're very brave to make predictions publicly. <laughs> I have a nasty habit of coming back to people. But I think I think what people can can do during this time, I mean, staying staying connected obviously is important. I mean, I know that there's a, a YouTube chat going on right now as we do this live stream and people right. interacting with each other and all that sort of thing. I think that helps. I mean, there's a there's a variety of online communities as well for, for all sorts of interests and you can find people in your local area. But I think doing that sort of thing is very helpful. And then once we're out of this, plan to actually meet up. You know, so if you have a particular sporting interest or a, a book club or something like that, I think right, I think that's right. helpful. And I think I think during this time as well, I mean always trying to, to find a silver lining is that we've all kind of been forced to slow down a little bit. So it could be a good time to maybe do some projects, you know, those things that you always put off. It's like, oh, maybe there's a book you've always meant to read and now's the time to do that. Certain home improvements, maybe you want to sew more or, you know, something something like that. I mean, the we can we still have online shopping so you you can get things to you as well. I think it's a it's a time to sort of slow things down and learn some skills. Right. And then, you know, on the on the other side of that you could you could possibly you know, turn that turn that into something as well. I mean, right, you know, right. there's various online universities and online courses as well. So you you could even think of during this time of reskilling or upskilling yourself. And I think I think that helps as well to sort of alleviate some of the feelings of anxiety and and despair. If you can have a have a goal for yourself, like you know, right. in in the next month or two months, I want to read this book or I want to complete this online course, and then right. you've got the next step as well. And I think that helps with those community bonds as well that we're talking about. Actually, I know this is a bit out of the blue, but let me ask you about that upskilling idea, because of course, uh, Dan Tehan, the education minister, has been talking about micro courses, uh, so that, you know, encouraging universities to offer these six-month short courses that people can do to upskill to get a certificate of some kind. Now, the certificates don't even exist yet, right? The government is promising to rush through legislation to create a new category of, you know, six-month certifications from universities. I know this is not, you know, something you've been thinking about, we're, we're just fully, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. Is, is this a good idea? Should, you know, short courses for people in pandemic? It would, it would depend the the practical applications. I mean, just just the way you outlined it. Then, if there's a certificate that doesn't exist, I would be concerned that people would do a short course and then it actually wouldn't have anything. So, you know, maybe you do this course thinking it gets you a particular right. skill or job, and then out the other side, you, that you it doesn't don't, exist you don't for have. Reason. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I think, I, I think, I think possibly it could be a a, a policy done a little bit too quickly. But I mean. These these things already 
already exists. There's you know, there's there's open universities. There's various the the names are escaping me right now, but I know there's right. there's on various online courses you can do. I don't know if we need to recreate something out of out of thin air. I mean, there's there's TAFE you can do online and and those sorts of things. Various private colleges that offer online courses. So I think if, if people were interested in upskilling, they could look at those sorts of things. Right. And there are lots of private colleges who really could use the business right now, I suppose, of uh, you know, getting people into their already established certificate programs. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have a question from our CIS colleague, Peter Curti. Uh, Peter Curti asks, are you worried about the new digital surveillance being ushered in by many governments to combat the coronavirus? Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for the question, Peter. <laughs> good. Good to connect with you digitally. I think. Um, yes. Yeah. I'm. I'm absolutely very concerned about where this is going. So I know the the Morrison government has come out and said that they're interested in using a Singaporean app where it it traces, you know, where people have have been and how much contact you've, if you spent more than 15 minutes with someone who's possibly infected and, and all that sort of thing. And, and various other countries have, have implemented this as well. And, you know, the, the, the problem with these sorts of technologies is twofold. So it's the potential for misuse and also what, what happens when we're on the other side of this crisis. I mean, the, in Australia, the metadata laws are a good example. So they were, they were used supposedly to, to combat terrorism and, and make Australians safer. That was the argument for their introduction. And then you had councils asking for access to the information so they could they could follow up people for minor infractions like littering and those sorts of Are things. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. So so potential for, for misuse is, is quite high. And in, in South Korea, they've actually also introduced a similar app to track coronavirus. And I mean, it's it has some very, very damaging effects in terms of privacy. So even though the information is de-identified, it doesn't say the person's right. name, it has enough information so people can figure it out. And there's there's been stories of, you know, people being like, oh, you know, this person has coronavirus, here's their name and they live here. And then they're getting they're getting threats and they're getting online oh, wow. online abuse and all that sort of thing. So I think it's it's a technology that we we just should very much shy away from because it'll just I mean we already have a lot of surveillance. So like I said, we have metadata laws, right. and we have all these things already. I just think we, we just cannot open that door. And from from what the government tells us as well, the measures that they've introduced so far have flattened the curve. Even though they've said even though that they've said that, you know, we can't relax the restrictions, we shouldn't you know, we shouldn't think that we've won, but we're heading in the right direction. I don't see why we have to introduce a technology that will undoubtedly be misused and all the negatives that will come from that when we're told that we're on the right track already. Right. Now, uh, thanks for that. I told you we had uh, some viewers from as far away as Pittsburgh in the United States, but I have to say we, our, our reach has gone even deeper into deep space because Michael from Liverpool, New South Wales is actually online with us. And that's about as remote as it gets. But Michael says, you know, from the Southwest suburbs, I have never seen so many people out and about in the footpaths, families with prams, with pets of all sizes, kids on bikes, appear to be enjoying the new experience. 
is it possible that in fact uh, being locked down at home has actually made us rediscover uh, our public spaces? I, th- I think for for some for some people, I think that's definitely the case. But uh, as as always with a lot of policies and interventions, there's the unintended consequences. So I know in, I know in some areas, and they're actually talking about closing certain parks and footpaths because they're overcrowded. Even though we're allowed to go out and exercise, that's one of our pre-approved activities that, that we right. can do during one this of time. 12. Yeah. yeah. I thought that I thought there was only four. I think that New South Wales said there were four, but I know exercise is definitely one of them. However many, however many we have, but I, th- I think as well. I mean, just just from my personal experience, I now I now go out for for two, for two walks a day. So I think that you know, we, we we don't know if the people who are out and about, if it's just the same people going out quite often or if it's a bunch of different people. And as I said, the, the YouGov survey that I cited earlier in this in this conversation, it found that a decent portion of people were exercising less than before. So I think I think it's good that people out in Liverpool are enjoying the, the right. sunshine and that sort of thing. But I mean this this is early this is early days at the moment. We right. don't know if we don't know if that'll keep up. But I'm glad, I'm glad things are looking rosy in Liverpool. <laughs> That's good news. Look, uh, our CIS colleague, Greg Pulsher, has two questions for us. So the first one is, would everyone please, please, please press the subscribe button and subscribe to the YouTube channel to get us over 10,000 subscribers? And But his second question is maybe even more. Oh, Greg has three, four questions. Okay, Greg. Well, his second question was, will this crisis make us make Australians more ready to give up personal liberties in exchange for security? What do you think? Well, to, to his first point, I completely agree. Everyone needs to subscribe. <laughs> and also, if they can give the video a like so we can uh, boost our numbers and, and get our important message out there. So right. I'll agree with that one first, Greg. And the more likes, I should stress to everyone, the more likes we get, the more likely other people are to be shown this video. So please do press the like button, please do subscribe. But Monica, sorry to cut you off. Are we uh, likely no, to uh, give up these liberties permanently? I That, that is a, a real concern of mine that people will, I mean, so far we've been very willing to to give up our, our liberties and to do as we're told. I mean, people point out examples you know, every now and then where a group goes to the beach or people, you know, disobey the current rules or whatever. On the whole, everyone is being remarkably obedient. Most right. people are doing what they're being told. They're social distancing. They're not going out. They're working from home when they can. They're not having parties, that sort of thing. And I worry now that this threat has been introduced in the same way that I was talking about the technology and we had no idea, you know, the 31st of December 2019, that this is where we would be, the 16th of April 2020. I think people are now aware of the threat of a pandemic and they're, they're concerned, they're, they're frightened, absolutely all understandable emotions. Right. And we're going to have to, as we come out of this, we're going to have to wrestle with the, the question of, you know, how much are we willing to give up in order to ensure this doesn't happen again?
Right. Now, we're, we're going to be wrapping up soon. We'll take a final round of questions. And also, I'm sorry to everyone for continuing to spruik this, but you know, CIS really could, not only could CIS use the funding, but this show could use the funding in the sense that if people contribute during this hour of our live stream, CIS is much more likely to devote the resources to keeping us on air. And so please do, you know, go to the site, cis.org.au. Greg, you know, please put that donate link back in the comment section. And uh, we'd love to have you know a donation of whatever size. We do have a question. Another uh, this question from Mark. Mark asks: Is it possible that this experience has given us as a society uh, the opportunity to prioritize our family and prioritize spending time with our family rather than you know wealth building goals or just going to work every day? I mean, has this crisis really been good for the family? Well, thanks. Thanks, Mark. That's a that's a that's a good question and something I've been I've been pondering as well. I, I wonder when we're on the other side of this and we can go to restaurants and cafes and that sort of thing. Is is there going to be just a an explosion and everyone's going to be absolutely dying to get out of the house and away from their family and all of those things? We'll see we'll see a boom or or will this be a permanent change in in behaviour? I mean, at, at the moment we just don't we just don't know. And I I think. As I was talking about, you know, the way that we could handle this as a community level in terms of slowing down and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think people will have an opportunity to reconnect with the family or all the people in their house. But I mean, at at the moment, this this is very early days. I mean, the way everything's moved, it sort of feels like we've been in this lockdown. I think unless it's just me, it feels like we've been in an awful <laughs> an awful lot longer than what we have been. And if if it, if it carries on, we don't know when it's going to end. And those other pressures that I was talking about in terms of loss of income, loss of job, those sort of things, if those, if those keep mounting, I think that, I think that could possibly negate the, the early beneficial effects of people can reconnecting with their family. All right. So we have a few uh, final questions, a lightning round sort of. Peter asks us, why are we simply accepting that governments are right to take our rights by simply asserting that they know what's best? Why are we accepting government guidance on what's best for us instead of making our own decisions? Sure. I think I think it's fear. I think just on a on a very on a very fundamental level, I think there's something particularly frightening to people about a pandemic and something that's infectious. I mean we don't know. It's something we, we don't know who has it. We don't know when we can possibly get it. It makes interacting with other people a necessary and enjoyable activity all of a sudden dangerous. But I, th I think people, I mean, and it's, it's also not, it's not a threat you can easily point to. It's not like, you know, oh, there's a fire run in the other direction. It's potentially, right. it's potentially everywhere and nowhere. So I think just on a, if I would, if I would, if I would reduce my answer to that to that very good question to one word, it would be fear. Right. Gay, Gay is asking us, she says she's doing an experiment at present by getting everything she needs by home delivery so they don't have to go out to the house other than to exercise. Do you think that's going to be the new norm? Most people delivering from home, um, yeah, home yeah. deliveries. Yeah, I mean, I think so, particularly if, I mean, even though we, the governments had various, you know, job keeper and job seeker and all those sorts of packages, there will be businesses we know that just won't come back. So I think if if they can pivot to 
to online or or more people are going online yeah i think i think absolutely we could see a a even bigger i mean it was it was trending that way anyway and if people get used to it if they find out that it's more convenient i think that 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 could absolutely be the future i mean because people realize it's not just you know grocery you can get online you can get absolutely absolutely anything the the only caveat i would add to that is if there's massive delays at the moment due to surges in demand <laughs> now mike is asking us and i don't know if you've read the article i haven't apparently edward snowden had an article on vice about uh medical you know agents of social control essentially all of the apps that governments are using to track people on their phones uh who's going to keep this in check i mean Who's watching the watchers when it comes to the people who are starting to monitor our online data for our own health? Yeah, well, that's that's a, a good question, and I haven't seen the article, Mike. Thank you. I'll I'll have a look at that. I think, I think, unfortunately, the answer is 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 no one, because I mean, it it can't. I don't think it can possibly be done because once once they have this information, I mean, the, the the thing about particularly online privacy is once you give up that information, you have no control on what on what happens to it and that's that's not always to say that it'll be used for nefarious purposes but it absolutely can i mean you know during this time cyber attacks and hacks have increased information can just be mishandled i mean we saw we saw what happened when when people tried to access the mygov website and that crashed and when we tried to do our census online a few years ago in australia that just didn't work i think i mean just you know, at a, I don't think anyone will be will be watching it. And like I said, once you give it up, you can't get it back. Right. We have a question from Dream Runner, which uh, is true. Is, is is really, you know, it hits my heart because I just published an article on this. Uh, as a new in the new technology of the internet, are we as society starting to accept the digital age as the primary reality, whereas it was previously the secondary reality? Thanks, Dream Runner. So. That's a good question. I think the the interesting thing about about this this moment as well is that we've had these technologies for a while. So you know we've we've been out of Skype, teleconference, do all these sorts of things for for quite a while. And most people chose to use it in a limited sense. They still went into an office. They didn't work from home. They met up with each other. Those sorts of things. Now we've been forced into it. I wonder if if on the other side people are going to be happy with this or they'll sort of be a rebellion. I'm I'm kind of leaning towards I think the the second option in that, you know, we're gonna be so hungry for face to face interaction and for, for human connection and and particularly if, if you have not a great internet connection and you're trying to have these conversations and it's buffering and it's just not working. So I think I think we could possibly see not exactly the an opposite of rebelling of, of technology, but I, I don't think that we're going to see a, a massive revolution that'll be that different to what it right. was before. I think there'll be there'll be changes in behaviour. People might work from home more. There might be more flexibility, but right. I, I don't think it's going to be this huge, massive societal shift to mostly online. Now, we're going to have to go to the final question. Shout out to my brother, Pete, who is watching from Baltimore, Maryland, and who has okay. asked this question. We're going, to, we're going to go to it. But first, I just like, you know, we have, we have uh, more than 60 people watching right now. 
please just press that thumbs up button. 60 are watching, only 15 have pressed the thumbs up. We'd love to have everyone liking this uh, video. Also, please subscribe to CIS in the subscribe button you'll see down there. Ring the bell if you want to get notifications. We'd love to have your support on the website at cis.org.au. Click the donate button. Every $10 helps. Also, the more donations we bring in from this program, the more likely it is CIS will put the resources in to keeping us on the air every week. So Pete, thanks for the question. And that was, I know all the arguments against herd immunity, but isn't that what we'll ultimately have to embrace to get beyond this? As, um, as I'm not a health expert or an epidemiologist, I, I'm not a not across whether herd immunity is going to going to completely work or not, but I think I think this goes to a point that I know uh, you, Salvatore, raised in a previous piece for the Australian that's now on the CIS website. In terms of, we need an end game out of this, and we need some some metrics so we know what can be unlocked and when. And I think that's really what the government needs to communicate because. Is their plan total eradication? Or are we going to be living like this until we're at zero new cases? Or are we going to see some some benchmarks in terms of, you know, once there's this many new cases a day, then that's when we can slowly start to lift some restrictions. And I know in that piece that I mentioned, you outlined, you know, the agriculture sector and those sorts of things that could possibly be unlocked first. But I think I think that's what has to be communicated from the government because we we don't know what they're thinking. Is it are they moving towards a herd immunity strategy or is it complete eradication? Right. Well, I'll just read one final comment out from Inez. Inez has asked Boris about herd immunity, uh, referring to Boris Johnson. The UK went for herd immunity and it went horribly wrong. That's uh, Inez's two cents on that. Thanks, Inez, for watching. Thanks, everyone, for contributing. We really do appreciate it. Please do subscribe to the YouTube channel. Thanks especially to Monica Wilkie. Thanks, Monica, for your time this morning and for all of your insights. Really appreciate it. Uh, I'd also like to thank our producer, Max Hawk Weaver. He's the one behind the scenes, associate producer, Emily Holmes. Thank you, everyone, for joining us here. Hey, the donate button never closes, so please do go on to the CIS website. We'd love to have a donation. Keep us on air. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Monica, and bye, Thanks, everybody. Thanks,